Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. Happy Friday to you all. Hope you're all getting ready for a great weekend. So, so happy to be back with you here. You know, we're going to be covering voting rights and we're going to go through some of the recent news in Georgia and some of the crazy things that are going on there. We'll break it down. We'll talk about who should be able to vote. And and I've got a number of ideas of my own on this whole thing. And then we're also going to talk about bicycling today. And this was sort of inspired by a local guest column here in Poway. Uh, Amit Asaravala was talking about bike lanes and children commuting to school on bikes. And we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on cycling today as well in the second half of the uh, podcast episode. And Mike Ryan already jumping in on the live stream. Hey, hey John, he says, and, and hey, Mike, how are you? <laughs> Good to see you. Hope you're getting ready for a good weekend. I saw you brought uh, Blanca into the shop to get an oil change. So hope she's doing well. You're a white 240Z. Um, yeah. So anyways, just welcoming everyone to join us in the live stream. You know, we're live streaming on both Facebook and YouTube. We'd be happy to take your thoughts, your comments. We'll read them on the air. We'll have some fun. We'll have a little conversation on a Friday. Uh, But yeah, we're back at you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. as my schedule permits. And here we are. It's Friday. It's at 2. So let's let's get into the... uh, the whole concept of this this voting rights scandal, it's been cooking in the news, and we're hearing stories about how in Georgia they're really changing the rules on who can vote and when they can vote, and it's got a lot of people just outraged about the whole topic of voting because you know there's going to be a lot less people that are going to be eligible to vote, and, and so there's conspiracy theories and there's outrage, and President Biden was upset about it in his press conference yesterday. So yeah, let's let's go through some of this. But here on the live stream, Mike Ryan's saying it was actually the Subaru. Uh, but Blanca will be next in on Thursday. I thought it was Blanca that I saw, so maybe I mistook that. Um, but all good. Uh, anyway, so in Georgia, what are they doing? So they're implementing, um, you know, not only you have to have a photo ID in order to vote, but you have to have a photo ID, a photo ID to vote by mail. And I'm thinking, how is that possible? Because usually, you know, when you vote by mail, they check signatures. But now what they're doing is they're asking people to provide like their driver's license number and then they can cross check and verify that way rather than through signatures. Um, and then if you don't have a driver's license or a government issued ID, you've got to provide some sort of proof of who you are. This I always thought was an interesting one because – for advocates of voter ID, I always wondered how in the hell do you do voter ID when people are voting by mail? And even with a driver's license number, I mean, if a if a person got a ballot at home and it went to a recently deceased uh, family member or maybe a elderly family member that isn't altogether with it anymore, wouldn't take much for someone to, to even just get their driver's license number or their photo ID number and jot it down. But again, they're they're trying to clamp down on this. And and a lot of our friends on the right, a lot of our conservative friends are convinced that there is massive voter fraud. They're convinced that the election was stolen uh, from Donald J. Trump. And so that's this whole reaction. In fact, they lost the election and now they're changing the rules to give them a better chance to win the election in the future. Um, But, yeah, in in the state of Georgia, there are 200,000 people that lack a driver's license or a government issued photo ID, which actually is amazing, really. I mean, it's 
Now, granted, you know, I'm not a I'm not a supporter of voter ID, but getting a voter getting a photo ID is just so easy. And yeah, I understand some people aren't going to have a driver's license because they're not driving for whatever reason. But it's not it's not hard to get a government issued ID. And frankly, there's so many other situations in life where you need an ID. So it's amazing that people exist without one. Um, But again, I don't think you need to have an ID to vote because voting is a right. Voting should be easy. Um, and, And this ID thing is just another hurdle. It's another complication. And it's also based on this false premise that there is just pervasive, massive voter fraud. Um, They're also what they're doing is they're shrinking the absentee ballot deadline. So, you know, here in California, you can vote with an absentee ballot, I think, all the way up to the day of the election. Well, in Georgia, they're going to cut you off 11 days before the election. And so they're having this, you know, early deadline to get all those absentee ballots in. That's going to disrupt some people for sure. Um, And then in order to qualify or at least to request to be on an absentee ballot, they're changing those rules and they're making you request them further and further in advance, which is going to, for those people that maybe for whatever reason they didn't register or, you know, maybe they just kind of were out to lunch, they're going to find themselves in a situation where it's a month or two before the election and they just can't vote period. I mean, the registration is going to be closed. So it's another mechanism that they're using to limit the number of people that vote. And then also in Georgia, it's amazing what they've done in Georgia. You know, this is, it makes you wonder if like Boss Hogg and Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane from the Dukes of Hazard are behind all this. Um, but they, they're also limiting where ballot drop boxes can be placed. And so these are the boxes where if you vote early, that you can drop your your ballot off. You know, some people vote by mail, but other people like to drop off their ballot. And like, for example, here in Poway, I, I voted early and I voted by dropping my ballot off at Postal Annex. Now, I tell you about my friend Dennis that runs the Postal Annex here in Poway next door to Target. And he had actually a San Diego County Registrar of Voters official in his Postal Annex and an official Dropbox, um, which is which is great. But, you know, what they're doing now is they're saying in Georgia that they will only allow the official Dropboxes in the official early voting locations, you know, where they actually have the polls where you can go in and vote. So they're limiting the places where you can actually drop off an early vote. And they're also saying that, you know, uh, when you're within four days or less of the election, they're not allowing any more people to drop off votes. So again, limiting people, especially those that maybe aren't as organized and kind of wait till the last minute, they're basically cutting them off and saying your vote won't count. You know, so it, all of these things, you know, are all obviously an effort to prevent people from voting. And and they're even going to the some people are saying that this is like Jim Crow version 2.0, you know, that. Well, that, that, that there's this racial angle to this. And yeah, I mean, you know, you're in Georgia. There's a very large black population. Um, are these measures directly targeting blacks? You know, not really. Um, but are the blacks the ones that are going to suffer from this? Yeah, but so will white people, too. And so will people of other races. If they're not organized, if they don't have a voter ID, if they aren't planning on voting according to these new rules and they're paying attention to the new rules. I mean, there's going to be people that are going to get, you know, essentially 
cut off. They're going to show up to vote and they're going to discover that they can't vote. So when this next election happens, there's going to be people, you know, out, outraged for sure is going to happen. And then this is the part that is just nuts, is that they're saying that it is now going to be illegal to distribute food and water to voters that are waiting in line. Now, they're, they're saying, well, the, the polling people will be able, you know, the officials from the the um, the voter, what do they call it? You know, the, essentially the voting officials, they'll provide water to people waiting in line. But for anyone else, if you want to show up and kind of show some love for people waiting in line and offer them a sandwich or a, a bottle of water or whatever, that's against the law. And this this is nuts. And, you know, I was... Well, first of all, there there shouldn't be really long lines to vote in the first place where people are standing out there, you know, in the, in the weather and and, you know, getting tired and wait, frankly, wasting a hell of a lot of time. The process should be faster. It's like I always talk about with immigration. It should be easier, faster, cheaper. I mean, voting should be easier, faster, you know, cheaper. It's not like you have to pay to vote, but the the lines should move quickly. Um, but they set up all of this bureaucracy. It's funny the the our friends on the right, our conservative friends, are the ones that are setting up more regulations for voting and more regulations for immigration. They're the ones that want more regulation. I'm always a big supporter of deregulation, uh, you know, across the board, pretty much. Um, but I was. Um, uh, having a conversation with this online with Chris Olps. And, you know, Chris is a local political, political activist here in our town of Poway. Actually, he's been a guest on the podcast a few times, a good guy. And we were wondering, like, what is the rational purpose? What What's the reason that voters that are waiting in line are not allowed to receive food, free food and drink? I mean, what, how does that make sense? I mean, what's the logical purpose of such a law? And I came to the conclusion, it's kind of like, remember Rahm Emanuel, the former chief of staff of Barack Obama and the former mayor of Chicago. Remember he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think the Republicans are sort of doing this. I mean, they've kind of invented this crisis of um, massive voter fraud, and then they're using that as an excuse to be able to kind of ratchet down in a lot of categories to discourage people from voting. So imagine if you, you know, there's all these now rules that are limiting your ability to vote by mail or to drop off a ballot early. So let's say you wait till election day and there's going to be more people waiting till election day for all those reasons. And then the voting lines are going to be longer and longer. And people are going to say, well, geez, I just got off work and I'm hungry and, you know, I got to eat dinner. And and some people are just going to say, screw it. And they're not going to vote. And then the people that are behind this are going to get their wish that less people will vote. And that's really what this is all about. You know, another um, local activist here in my town, Chris Cruz, she even joked, she said, what happened to Southern hospitality? You know, providing food and drink for people waiting in line and that kind of good, good old boy Southern hospitality, where'd that go? And that's that's actually a pretty funny angle. Just thinking about, um, yeah, about, about um, what, were the, what were the Duke brothers? What were, what were their... It was Jesse. It was Uncle Jesse and uh, who and Daisy Duke, right? Remember her and Bo and Luke Duke, and yeah, they had. I mean, 
granted, it was a crazy TV show from the late 70s, but they had Southern hospitality, right? Um, so, I, geez, I'm basing my whole knowledge of the Southern United States based on that and Mayberry RFD, but there, yeah, what happened to being nice, being friendly? I, this rule just makes no sense. Um, now, granted, they're expanding weekend voting. I guess that's their way of trying to have a little bit counterbalance to this. And that's weekend voting again for early voting. They're allowing a more of that on weekends. Um, but still, it, it's something. And, and then you, you hear some of these, um, you know, our friends on the left, our progressive friends, they'll say, well, we, we should make voting. Um, actually, we should make buying a gun just as difficult as it is to vote, you know, suggesting all these waiting periods and limitations and and voter ID checks and everything else. And it's funny how th- th- those two things are, you know, that kind of play against each other, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. You know, the the people, our friends on the left, our Democratic friends, they want to make voting easy, but getting a gun difficult. And then our friends on the right are the opposite. They want to make voting difficult, but getting a gun easier. And I'm always at the point, I always believe that voting rights and gun rights, they're rights. They are rights under the law. Rights should not be difficult to exercise. Rights should be easy. Now, granted, we can break it down and say whether or not, you know, everyone needs to vote or own a gun and yada, yada. But if you have a right to something... They shouldn't set up all these hurdles and barriers and limitations. If you have a right, it should be easy, right? But it's funny how our friends on the left want voting to be easy, but a gun to be difficult. And our friends on the right want voting to be difficult, but a gun to be easy. Um, So they're both kind of, how should I say, kind of um, double standards on the way they want to implement rights. But in the end, you know, we have people on the left and the right that want to limit the other person's rights. And so that's what we're seeing here. Clearly, we're seeing that here. Now, what what blows me away is this whole thing is, yeah, the Republicans lost pretty badly in the last election. Now, actually, I think they might have made up some seats in the House, but you figure they lost the the presidency, obviously. They lost Senate, right? So now the the Democrats sort of have the tiebreaker in the Senate. Um, They already don't have the House. So the Republicans are at a definite disadvantage. And it makes you wonder about the long-term stability of the party. Um, In President Biden's press conference, he even sort of hinted, you know, are the Republicans going to be around in 2024? Now, obviously, they'll still be around. But it, it just seems like this is just another example of how the Republicans just keep damaging their brand. And Rand Paul has talked about this. And even um, uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Lindsey Graham has talked about this is how it's getting harder and harder for Republicans to win. And a lot of times it's because of their own self-inflicted damage to their own brand. Um, So now we're dealing with this stop the steal thing. And People are convinced that there was voter fraud and there's really no significant evidence of it. I, I think this falls into the category of if, if you repeat a lie often enough, then it becomes someone else's truth. And it's getting to the point now where people now believe there was tremendous voter fraud and that's why President Trump didn't win. 
And I'm thinking, okay, well, let's say there was voter fraud, which, again, I can't imagine it was significant. But how come the voters for Trump aren't being accused of voter fraud? Maybe Trump didn't get as many votes as he thought he did because there was voter fraud. No one ever thinks of it from that perspective. They always assume that it's the Democrats that are committing voter fraud. They never think that the Republicans might be trying to do the same damn thing. But you think that if there was proof of voter fraud, that it would be evident. There would be facts on the table. There would be evidence. But even what's her name? Sidney Powell, I think, was um, God, what was her role? She was doing something for the Trump administration. But she just came out and admitted that all of her um, grandstanding about how Dominion voting systems were changing the votes. There was like some evil algorithm in the computer, a ghost in the machine, essentially, that was changing votes. She's basically admitted that it was all a lie. She said, well, no reasonable person would assume that that was actually accurate. So now even the Trump supporters are admitting that to stop the steal is based on a lie. But, but still, they believe there's so much voter fraud, and so they're implementing all this, these, these limits on your ability to vote. And to me, this is just nuts. It's just – it's insane. And it's kind of like an example of, you know, if you lose the election, you, you, you then want to change the rules so you can win next time. It reminds me – I remember here in Poway with our Poway Unified School District for the longest time. They kept trying to pass a bond, right? This is like going back 15, 20 years ago. And back then they had to get two thirds of the people to approve a a school bond. I think it was two thirds. It might have been 60 percent, but it was something like that. And they could never get the votes to be um, be enough to pass the bond. So what did they do? They changed the rules and they lowered it to only a 55 percent threshold so they could win the election. To me, this is kind of like the same thing. It's like if you can't win then they just they change the rules and it just seems just insane. So, um, you know, my thoughts on this whole thing, I mean, number one is voting should be easy. <laughs> voting is a right. When you have a right to something, then exercising that right should be painless. It should be very, very, very um, low bar of difficulty because you have a right to it. I mean, after all, if it was if they make it difficult, then it makes you wonder, is it a right in the first place? If they're making it difficult, what they're basically telling you is they don't want it to be a right. So not only do I think that voting should be a lot easier, I think they should lower the voting age. And I think people 16 and up should be able to vote. And, and the reason is, is that 16-year-olds, many of them pay taxes, I mean, they're paying – a lot of them work, right? So they're, they're paying – well, they might not be paying federal or state income tax because they may not earn enough. But they're sure as hell paying Social Security tax and Medicare tax and all the other payroll taxes. That's happening for sure. If they're 16, they're paying gas taxes. If um, they're 16, they're probably going to the store and buying stuff and there's sales tax. And – I know there's a lot of people that would be probably angry with me for suggesting such a thing because young people either A, are not as educated on the issues, and then B, they might be more manipulated by propaganda, especially propaganda that might be shared in the schools. And then thirdly, um, 
many people think that younger, well, in fact, it's true. Younger people are typically a lot more idealistic. Um, they haven't been out in the real world enough to under, kind of understand how it all works. But even with all that baked in, I think people should be able to vote when they're younger. Um, if you are paying taxes, you know, this whole idea, taxation without representation. If you are paying taxes, you should be able to vote because they're making decisions on how much to tax you and how to spend your tax money. So, again, I think voting should be easy. Now, granted, what happened in California with Newsom mailing everyone their ballot in the mail and Now, that went, I thought, a little too far. Now, granted, I know that there was a pandemic and it was harder to get to the polling places, et cetera. But it was almost like they flooded the market with ballots, which kind of if you are a believer in voter fraud, you can see how that kind of stokes those fears. Right. But ultimately, um, I think they should make voting easier, not but not. So ridiculous, easy, easy that they're helicopter dropping all the all the ballots for people to vote. I wouldn't go that far. But if people register to vote and they want to vote by mail and you know absentee ballots to, and they should make registration to vote relatively easy, I think that's a good thing. Now, Mike Ryan on the live stream chiming in. I don't agree with lowering the age, John. Uh, most 16 year olds can't comprehend the importance of politics. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. But you know what, Mike? There are a lot of adults age 35 or age 43 that don't understand the importance of politics. And they also vote crazy. They make crazy decisions with their votes. In many cases, those adults are manipulated by the media, manipulated by institutions, manipulated by a whole lot of other folks, by corporate advertisers. We can go down the list. There's a lot of people that make foolish decisions with their votes right now. So I think on that basis, I mean, some people think there should be an IQ test to vote or some sort of a vote to prove your intelligence. That'd be something. Um, Of course, I don't agree with that. Uh, But it, you know, you, you, you either have to, how do I say this? The, The best way to do this really is just to make voting easy. Just to make it easy. Um, I'm even of the belief that they should allow felons to vote. You know, Mike Ryan on the live stream says, yeah, this is true. LOL. Yeah, probably of adults that have no clue who they're voting for or why they're voting. I mean, some people's motivation for voting is crazy. I mean, some people will vote party line no matter what. I mean, they don't, it doesn't matter if their candidate, their guy has a crazy background. I mean, Trump is a great example. People will just vote for their party lockstep. You know, that's why in some states they just have party line, straight line voting where you can rather than voting on each individual race, you can just click a box at the very top and say, I pick all the Democrats or I pick all the Republicans. (laughs) They make it easy for you to do that in some states, which is nuts. But then other people vote for other crazy reasons. Like they they vote for the candidate they think is going to win as though They're betting on a horse race or something. Um, There are other people that just don't like a person, you know, just that gives them some candidates just make them feel uncomfortable. So they vote for the other guy. Um, A lot of people vote because they're voting for the lesser of evils. Right. They think, you know, of the two major party candidates, one guy is horrible, but the other guy is even worse. So they'll vote for the horrible guy. (laughs) Even though there's other choices on the ballot besides those two. I mean, people make crazy 
choices when they vote. But really, if you have a right to vote, then you should be able to vote for whatever the hell crazy reason you have. Just like you have a right to free speech, you should be able to say whatever the hell crazy thing you want to say because you have a right to do it. A couple other comments on the live stream from, from Chris, Chris Sohei. Hmm, you have to take an exam to drive? I like the test to vote idea. Yeah, I mean, imagine if there was a test to vote. I mean, we even talked about this in the, one of the previous podcasts. Mike, Mike Devine and I got into it about if, if American citizens could actually pass the citizenship test that immigrants have to pass. And I, I shared with him a link. It was like 60% or two-thirds of the people in America that are citizens could never pass the immigration test. Excuse me, the citizenship test. What would be the test to vote? You know, and who would administer that test? How would you make the decisions on what questions to ask? And that opens up a whole can of worms. Then people would probably say the questions are racist, right? You know, someone's going to say that. Um, so I don't. If you have a right to something, then you shouldn't have to qualify. You, uh, you know, if you already have a right, you shouldn't have to prove that you're of a certain level of intelligence to exercise that right because it's a right. Um, if it's a privilege, okay. Then it's a whole other game. It's a whole other story. Then if it's a privilege, then, yeah, we can set up all these rules and these qualifiers, these hoop jumping, the, the tests. But voting's a right. And if it's a right, it should be easy, accessible, and for everybody. So a couple more comments here from Mike Ryan. I believe people voted for Biden based on the emotion uh, versus if he could actually do the job. Well, I no, this is just my opinion. I think most people voted for Biden because they wanted to get rid of Trump. Uh, it wasn't because of Biden. I mean, there were there were very few people in the whole scheme of things that voted for Biden because they love Joe Biden. I mean, there's some people, I guess, that did because he was Obama's vice president. And I know that was a big part of how he attracted a, a good deal of the African-American vote. But still, most people voted for Biden because he wasn't Trump. Um, and frankly, a lot of people voted for Trump because he wasn't Biden. Um, Chris Sohei goes on to say, keeps voters and citizens up to date on past and current things. Yeah, yeah. I, I get th- I understand the value of a test. I'm just saying if you have a right to vote, then you shouldn't be a test. You shouldn't have to qualify. You shouldn't have to jump over a hoop or through a hoop or over a hurdle. Um, Mike Ryan goes on to say, that's what I meant about emotion. They wanted to get rid of Trump. Yeah, the whole Biden thing was mostly, mostly they want to get rid of Trump. I mean, if if the progressives, you know, the far lefties really wanted to, you know, do single payer health care and and wanted to do all of the more progressive policies, you know, free education. I mean, we go down the list. They would have they would have nominated Bernie. Or they would have nominated Elizabeth Warren, but they didn't. And the reason they didn't is they didn't think that those candidates could beat Trump. So they picked the candidate they knew could beat Trump, and that was Biden. And it makes sense. I mean, Biden was a vice president. Um, Biden is more centrist, so he's going to attract more voters. More independent voters are going to line up for Biden than they will for Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. So, yeah, uh, Chris so he says, easy answer, constitution, question and answer, black and white. Okay. Then the first question is, do you have a right to own a gun? <laughs> and then what's, what's the answer to that? I mean, I think I know what the answer is. 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, other people will say, no, you got to be in a militia, right? So there's even things in the Constitution are debatable, which is insane. I mean, it should be clear. But anyway, so, yeah, I like I would even go so far as to say that I think felons should be able to vote. Now, what do I mean by that? If if you committed a crime and I don't care what the crime is, I mean, you could have been a mass murderer. It doesn't matter. And if you go to jail and you complete your sentence and you are released from jail, then I think you should have all rights and, and liberties as any other free person in America. But in a lot of states, if you're a felon, you know, again, a felon means that you've committed a felony, went to jail, served your time, paid your price to society as determined by a judge and a jury. And then you completed that requirement and have been let out. Many states, if you're a felon, you, you get a basically scarlet letter. You're blackballed. You can't vote ever. Um, and then even some states will lessen a little. They'll say, well, if you get out of jail, but you're on parole, then you still can't vote. But once you get beyond parole, okay, then we'll let you vote. Um, there are some states, I think there might be some states that actually let people in jail vote. Now, maybe check me on that. I may not be right. But I've always believed that if you committed a felony and paid your price to society and fulfilled the term of your sentence, then we want you to be as integrated back into the normal society as possible so you can get your life back on track rather than being still being categorized as a outcast, um, still being categorized as someone that is unworthy. And we want those people to be reintegrated into society as we normally can. But if you continue to suppress their rights, even after they paid their price to society, then that just basically tells them that they're not worthy and and they're not accepted by the rest of society. And it frankly just encourages them indirectly to do more crime. Um, So what I'm seeing in Georgia is they're limiting voting rights. They should be expanding voting rights. Um, Mike Ryan says, I agree with that, John. You pay your debt. You should be able to vote. Yeah, exactly. Now, the, the other part of this, this is kind of crazy, is that, you know, government in general is extremely intrusive in people's lives, right? They're setting all these rules, all these central planners, setting rules in the economy, setting rules in your personal life and all the things you're allowed to do and not to do. And sometimes it gets really crazy, really complicated. Sometimes people can't do simple things in their life, you know? I mean, even like we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast, marijuana laws. I mean, we can go down the list of all kinds of insane rules that the government has is trying to manipulate and control society. They're incredibly intrusive. And then when you have an opportunity to control them by voting, then they limit your ability to do that. (laughs) So they want to control you, but they want to limit your ability to control them. So this is all part of the sham of the whole thing. Um, and, you know, what I always talk about in this podcast is that we have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So damn those people that are trying to limit our rights or limit our rights to manage our life, limit our rights to pursue our happiness. We should, you know, our friends on the right, our conservative friends, our Republican friends keep talking about freedom. But yet they want to limit the freedom of people to be able to vote. 
It's like, come on, man. Come on, you know. Um, practice what you preach. Um, but again, it just feels like a sore loser thing. Like, you know, the, you lost the election saying you're going to change the rules. Um, to me, that just sounds really bitter, um, really, you know, it just it just doesn't sit well with me. Now, what we have to do, and this is my advice, and this is what I keep trying to tell myself, and I would, I'll tell it to you too. We have to live our life as though a lot of this BS doesn't matter, okay? Now, granted, I know that the the you know the government's trying to do all these things to limit us to control us in a lot of different ways but we have to first of all call them out on their bs which which is what I'm trying to do in this podcast and I think the national media has been doing that pretty good like the last week or so but we've got to stop voting for these idiots you know these people that want to limit our ability to exercise our inalienable rights of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness if they want to come in and limit us and control us those are the people we got to say no siree bob you're out but people still vote for them because they think the other side is worse and so they keep picking the lesser of evils and they keep getting evil i mean at some point are we ever going to stop making these kinds of choices So we have to just quit voting for them. But mostly what we have to do is we have to live our life to the best of our ability so a lot of this nonsense doesn't matter at all. I know that's hard. I know it's difficult. Um, But if we are able to just say F those guys and pursue our happiness and live with gusto to the best of our ability, um, we could achieve tremendous success as much as we can on a relative basis, where a lot of this other BS almost becomes a nuisance. It almost doesn't matter, right? In the whole scheme of things that the goal should be to get to that point where it's not as big of a deal. Now, granted, it still is a big deal and it still is unfair that they're limiting people's right to vote. And that has to be called out. By no means am I saying it should be ignored, but we have to get, we have to live our life in a way that we don't get hung up on it, you know, that it doesn't drag us down. Um, we got to fight the good fight, but we have to live our life in such a way that we become so successful, so essentially happy in our pursuit of happiness that a lot of this riffraff just doesn't matter. So basically, it's kind of like control what you can control, right? And then YOLO, man, you know, you only live once. So get out there and, and, uh, and live your life, man, you know, and do the best you can. Um, but we tend to, we, we tend to, especially the way the society is and the media, everyone's so wrapped up into who the government officials are and yeah, they make a difference. I get it, but there's way more to life than that. (laughs) And we have to pursue our life with the greatest of vigor and energy as we can. So a lot of that nonsense doesn't matter. Okay, so what are your thoughts? Thanks, everyone, for already chiming in on this. Um, I want to get to a couple more things on the podcast. You know, again, I always welcome your thoughts and comments on social media. You can follow me on Facebook, uh, John Riley Project, on Twitter, John Riley Poway, or go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You can sign up on our mailing list. I got all my social media links there as well. Got a couple of blog articles I posted over the last year or so. I'm hoping to do more writing so you can get some more information about the podcast there. Um, just a few other personal updates I thought I'd share is, um, and today I actually scheduled the uh, COVID vaccine for myself. And for the longest time, I was under the assumption that you had to be over 65 to get the COVID vaccine. 
Um, and they were going to open it up to 50 and over on April 1st. And I think on April, was it 16th? Was it going to be 18 and over or 16 and over? Something like that. So I was kind of content just to wait till April 1st. But then someone said, no, you can get in if, you know, if you're overweight, you can qualify. And I'm like, really? Finally, a benefit to being a couple of pounds overweight, actually more than a couple of pounds. Um, and I had heard, though, that you had to have a BMI over 40 and like, oh, wow, well, you know, I need to lose weight, but I don't need to lose that much weight. Um, but then I found out it only needs to be a BMI of 25 and over and you can still qualify to get in and get the vaccine. I mean, BMI of 25, that's really thin. Um, but anyways, I called up, you know, I, I uh, called up Kaiser Permanente, schedule an appointment. So I'm going to get my my vaccine in at schedule on April 20th on 420. For those of you that know what that means. Um, so on 420, um, I will get my first vaccine. I assume it'll be probably Moderna. I, I was hoping it'd be that Johnson and Johnson's just to be a one timer and I'd be done. But so anyways, I'm happy about that. The other update I wanted to share and we, I did a podcast episode about this, I don't know, maybe a month ago or so. And I was telling you how we have solar panels on our house and we charge, we have two electric vehicles, right? Which is kind of cool, right? We generate energy from the sun and that powers our cars. So I know gas prices, I, so I've been told gas prices are going up and I'm like, what? Gas prices? Huh? I don't pay attention to that sort of thing because we charge our cars with electricity and that electricity comes from the sun, which is cool. And granted, I'm not a big tree hugger, but I just kind of love having essentially my own power plant at my house and I'm controlling it. Uh, Mike, Mike Ryan is saying that his, his wife's birthday is on 420 as well. Well, good for you, Mike, and good for you, Galit. Um, but gas prices have been going up, right? So I, I just know it's a big deal for a lot of people driving gas cars, but for us, we were noticing that our solar panels only provide, you know, generate so much energy, but we were having to pay overages. And so in addition to paying for our solar panels, we were also having to pay overage to SDG&E for electricity. And we were considering maybe do we need to get new panels uh, and expand our solar, essentially our solar farm? Do we need to get a battery and all these things? Well, and I had talked to our representative at Sunrun and he basically coached us. And what we've done is we reconfigured the way we charge our cars. And so now I was always under the assumption that I, could, I should charge the car during the day because that's when the sun is out. Um, but he said, no, the game to be played is that you want to charge your car when the rates are super cheap, like between midnight and 6 a.m. And then during the day, you want to generate as much power as you can that you can feed back into the grid and sell back into the grid at a higher rate than the energy you're drawing in the, in the middle of the night. So we went and, you know, I have a Hyundai Kona. My wife has a Tesla Model 3. We set our charging so it only happens between midnight and 6 a.m. And then we just got our last SDG&E bill. Guess what? Our electricity from SDG&E was zero, <laughs> zero dollars. I think we had to pay like roughly 10 bucks, like for the delivery fee, you know, for the, which is part of the infrastructure that they've built. But we had no overages. And now we're back in the sweet spot. So I'm really happy about that. Now, we still have to pay for gas, and it's been a little bit cold the last couple of months. Um, but now when we get into the summer and we'll have to run our air conditioning more, we'll see how that goes. Um, 
But anyways, I'm kind of happy about that. So I thought I'd share that with you. And uh, my wife's happy about that too. So all good. Um, and then, yeah, you know, the other last thing is, you know, I told you I, I was on a week-long trip and I got back Tuesday. And it's funny, you know, I took my trip just for a change of scenery and it was a working trip and I was exploring Nevada kind of way in the distant, desolate parts of Nevada. I was in Ely and Eureka and Alamo and Austin and Tonopah and Amargosa Valley. I was driving all over Nevada um, and it was great. It was a great trip. Learned a lot more things about myself. Got a lot of work done, working in solitude, all good. And I get home. It's weird. It's like almost like I never left, right? You just kind of slide right back into the old routine. And it's and I've only been home now for three for three days, and it feels like Groundhog Day all over again. It's incredible. Still glad I went. Um, Mike asks me, how long did you get the solar? So, you know, what we did now is we, we leased solar. And we I know a lot of people buy the solar panels, and they'll pay for it. And that may or may not be a better model. But we went to Costco. We went with Sunrun. And the beauty of leasing it was there was zero money down and instantly our electricity rate dropped by over 50%. It was like a no-brainer decision. Um, we didn't have to tie up our money in investing it into those panels. And, you know, we'll use our dollars elsewhere where we can get a better return on our investment. So that worked out in my opinion, very, very well. Now, I know other people think leasing it is a bad move and they'll buy them and then they finance them and 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 after so many years, they're paid for. Yeah, I get that. Now, our deal was it's a 20-year lease. So um, after year 20, then we own them outright. But if we sell the house, then that transfers to the new owner. But still, it's a pretty sweet deal. Uh, way, way, way cheaper than paying for electricity, especially from San Diego Gas and Electric, which is stupid expensive. So, you know, if we had to do it all over again, would I have bought them rather than leased them? Yeah, maybe. Um, but I'm still very happy with the lease. Very happy with it uh, because it was an instant win and it tied up zero dollars of cash. And they came out here and installed them and did everything for free. I didn't have to pay for installation, didn't have to pay for the panels, didn't have to pay for nothing, permitting, nothing. It was just sign up and they installed them. So anyways, uh, we're real happy with it. Okay, so gosh, we're at 42 minutes. I want to get into this topic. Um, and I mentioned, talked about this before on a previous podcast. And it's about cycling, about bicycles. And it, this was inspired by a guest editorial in our local paper, the Poway Chieftain. You know, if you want to get the online version, you can go to pomeradonews.com. And it was an article written by Amit Asaravala. And Amit is a good guy. He lives here in Poway. Um, I've met him a couple of times. Um, very friendly guy, very smart guy. Um, he is the president of the Poway Democratic Club. Now, okay, just for a matter of clarity, I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican. I'm a registered independent. And frankly, I disagree with both parties pretty strongly for a lot of reasons. And you probably kind of get that as I talk about that in my podcast. But Amit is a good guy. And there's a lot of times where Amit and I will, will agree. And I've, I've called him out on this podcast on other times when he's talked about issues that I've agreed with him. And so this is another case where I agree with Amit. And so I figured, let's talk about it. And let's give him props for that. So um, yeah, he did this guest editorial and I'll, I'll share the link to it in the, in the show notes. And I think this was posted maybe two weeks ago, I think, is when he shared it. 
And it was all about the traffic solution we can't keep ignoring. And it was all about bicycling and about commuting on bikes and you know, children going to school on bicycles and workers commuting on bikes. And it caught my attention because, you know, for me, biking was a gigantic part of my childhood. Um, I was really into BMX racing. And so, you know, it's bicycle motocross. And back in the late 70s, early 80s, the sport was very young. And Boy, it was at a really exciting time. And I remember all through high school, I mean, I just lived, ate, and breathed BMX. I worked at a bicycle shop when I was in, in high school. And on weekends, we would pile three, four, five guys in a van or in a truck. And I was in the Bay Area. We'd drive to San Jose, or we'd go down to Aptos down by Santa Cruz, or we would go to Grass Valley or Auburn or Placerville Frogtown. We would go to Modesto and Merced or Vallejo. Sometimes we went on longer trips to race in Long Beach or in Vegas or in Chandler, Arizona. I mean, I just had so much exciting times with biking when I was a kid. And it was a huge part of my life and met so many great people, had great experiences. And so when I see this article about promoting cycling, I'm like, yeah, right on, you know. And so, uh, you know, what's interesting is part of the premise of the article is that Amit was talking about how here in the city of Poway, parents frequently drop their kids off at school. And if you've ever been to an elementary school, it's like a friggin' traffic jam every morning and every pickup. It's just a cluster of cars. And, you know, when you're driving around a school and especially around that time, you not only have to go the school speed limit, you've got to go crazy slow because it's so dangerous. I mean, there's so many cars, so many kids like jumping out of cars because parents will double park and let their kid out. Um, you got to be really careful. And it and it screws up traffic, you know, within the one or two block radius of the school. I mean, it's something. And it's funny the way it is. I, I, I noticed it when I was here in Poway, and it was obviously never that the way when I was growing up. But I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I know a lot of my listeners and viewers live here in Poway, but it almost seemed to be sort of the Poway culture, right? Where maybe it was paranoia about their children walking to school alone, which never mind the fact that it's a lot safer now than it was 50 years ago. Um, mostly because 50 years ago, a lot of these crazy stories weren't in the news. They always are now when something horrible happens, it's in the news. Back then, it supposedly was a lot less safe. But yet, as children, we walk to school all the time. Um, but here, you kind of wonder, is it like the helicopter parent, you know, the parent that's really careful about their child's safety, maybe a little over the top? What is it? You know, and then when suddenly you know, let's just make up a number, 50% of the parents are dropping off their kids at school. Then suddenly more parents drop their kids off at school and it gets to 60% or 70%. And it just becomes part of the way the local community works. And, and it's something, you know, and, but it does, it creates this massive problem and uh, with traffic and, and Amit was talking about, well, how come kids don't ride their bike to school? And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, why why don't they? Why isn't that a thing anymore? And he goes on to say, um, oh, he was also he was going on to say that uh, uh, the the busing you know has been very limited with schools here in Poway. He said uh, California's lack of requirements and funding for home to school transportation, you know, have been diminished. But that doesn't mean we're out of options. 
But it is funny. I mean, a lot less kids take the bus. And that's an issue. And, and it's funny because as less and less money has been going to busing, mostly because more and more money has been going to salaries of teachers and other um, staff at schools. And, you know, the budget is only so big. So things outside of teachers and counselors and administrators tend to get squeezed. And then whatever's left over for busing, of course, the bus drivers need to make their money. And and then, you know, they're, they're getting their raises and they're part of a union and it just leaves less and less money for more buses. And then besides the fact that, you know, it seems like the trend, the culture here locally is for parents to drop off their children. Um, so I know for us, our two children took the bus when they were in middle school. And so they went to Twin Peaks Middle School. And for one, maybe two years each, they took the bus um, when we just couldn't synchronize with other families. But it was still like about 500 bucks a year. And that was like eight, nine years ago. So, you know, it's not cheap. I mean, you got to pay out of pocket for that. And, you know, depending on your situation, your family income, I mean, $500 a year could be a lot of money. So then you, when they start shifting that more to families to pay their own way, essentially, then less people use the bus and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then less and less people are on the bus. Now, another interesting aside with this, uh, and Mike Ryan says, um, have a great day, John. Sure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Um, back, gosh, when was it? It was, well, you know, I told you I ran for school board back in 2014, came up short, lost by 1%. Um, but one of my campaign promises is that, or the things I campaigned on is that there needs to be more citizen oversight of school finances. Just like in the city of Poway, there's a budget review committee. Why in the heck isn't there a budget review committee for the school district? Well, shortly after the 2014 election, they agreed to have a, um, a budget review committee. And so I figured, well, I'm going to volunteer for this. I mean, because if I didn't, it would be sort of uh, hypocritical. And so we went through that. And I remember we interviewed um, leaders from all different segments of the school district. And I remember talking with the gentleman who was in charge of the school bus people and learned a lot. But did you know that it is against the law? There's a law in Sacramento that says that school busing can never be outsourced to a private company. It always has to be a school district run government-run system. Now, I, you know, there's reasons. I'm sure people will think, well, we can't trust those third-party private companies to do this sort of thing. These are our children. But, you know, the the thing that I think what this really is is sort of job protection for government officials, for government employees. But it's still amazing, you know, and it's kind of another way that the system is so kind of screwed up and warped that a lot of times more innovative solutions are made illegal. You know, maybe private companies could do it better, cheaper, faster, but they don't even have an opportunity to compete because it's illegal for them to compete. But I digress. But yeah, so busing is not as big of a thing, in, in San, in, at least here in Poway. And then more kids are getting rides from their mom and dad, but no one's biking. And Amita Saravala said, well, how come there's not enough people biking? And, and he went on to say, well, you know, there's no paved connections between a lot of these neighborhoods. And that's true. Um, and, you know, he was suggesting, well, maybe, you know, we have this great trail system in Poway. How come we don't maybe pave some, not all, but some of the trails to connect different neighborhoods 
that might be a good idea. Um, he said that when he was biking with his child, that because there wasn't ways that neighborhoods were connected properly, he'd have to go on a busy street like a spoil road. But then cars are zinging by 55 miles an hour. And then there's service vehicles blocking lanes. And, and it just became unsafe. So I get it. You know, part of the reason that people don't bike to school is because it's not very safe in a lot of cases. Now, let me ask you, how did you get to school? Um, do you remember? I'll tell you my story. So when I was in elementary school from first to eighth grade, well, when I was really little, like first through third grade, I would get a ride. And that was mostly from either my family member or from a daycare provider. But I think starting in third grade, maybe fourth grade, I started to walk into school. And the big deal then was, can I cross the El Camino Real, which is the main road up and down the San Francisco Peninsula? And I had to cross over it to get to my school. Is there a safe way for me to do it? Was I old enough to do it? And, um, and so anyways, I was old enough to do that. And I would walk to school. And eventually there was a, another girl that lived down the street from me. And she and I, you know, just became really good platonic friends. And we would walk to school together and walk home together. And we both loved the rock band Kiss. So we would talk about that all the time. Um, her name was Deidre Merriman. I always wonder what happened to her. But another Irish family in Burlingame. And, uh, but then when I went to high school, you know, my situation changed. By this time, I had gotten a lot more into bicycling. And so I would ride my bike to school. Um, and I had my BMX race bike, but I would never ride that to school because I didn't want to park that out in front of the school and lock it up because it was just too valuable. Um, I had like worked my butt off and earned money so I could buy all the components and parts for it. I wasn't about to risk that, especially even if it was raining or, you know, any kind of damage. But I always had like two or three bikes because I was always like scavenging bike parts and building bikes. And I would always have like a clunker BMX bike that I would use just for street thrashing. And then I remember I built like a a 26 inch, um, you know, kind of cruiser bike back before beach cruisers were a big thing. And so I would always ride one of those bikes to school and I would go from my house to my high school. I don't know how long it was, maybe two miles, two and a half miles, something like that. Um, and, you know, I would mostly just kind of ride through the side streets and work my way there, never down the main road. But in my community, all the neighborhoods were sort of connected, you know, through through smaller streets, smaller arteries. And then in some cases, little alleyways that would connect you from one cul-de-sac to another. And there are ways that you could bridge the gap and it worked pretty well. And so, and I enjoyed it. And so it all, it all made sense. But then um, when I got a little older, I remember I got a moped and mopeds, remember those were kind of a big thing in the late seventies and the early eighties. And that was fun. And gosh, I might've even had this moped before I even had a driver's license. In fact, I'm certain I had it before I had a driver's license. So I was totally illegal. But I would ride the moped to school. I'd lock up the moped at the bike rack out in front of the school. And then I remember at lunch, I would take the moped and I would ride to El Super Burrito in Milbrae, which is like kind of like the equivalent of a Roberto's or an Alberto's in San Diego, but made more like mission style, San Francisco style uh, burritos, which were fantastic. This place is at the bomb. It's in a building. It looks like an old Darwin essential, like with a really tall, narrow roof. The most amazingly excellent burritos uh, at El Super Burrito in Millbrae, California. Um, I remember I would ride my, my, uh, 
my moped there for lunch sometimes and get a burrito for me and for one of my buddies and bring it back to school. It was just such a fun thing to be able to say that I was able to do. Um, and, and then, by the way, I moved to San Diego and then I learned all about Roberto's and Alberto's and those are excellent too, but obviously a different style. That's all. That should be a podcast discussion is how Mexican food is different in San Francisco than in LA, than in San Diego, because the styles are very distinct. They're all good, but for very different reasons. Um, and then, um, and then eventually I, I started driving when I turned 16, I had, I, I got a car, I got this old 1960 Ford panel truck and it was just a piece of crap that was rusted and primered and was supposed to be white, but had silver primer and black primer. And, but I ended up working and getting some really nice mag wheels for it and, fix it up. And it turned out to be a pretty sweet car. But um, even then, um, I would often still ride my bike to school, even though I had a driver's license, I had a car just because I enjoyed it. It was just kind of the way that I lived my life. But biking was a big, big deal for me. So Amita Saravala in his editorial here in the Poway Chieftain was talking about we need to improve bike lanes. This is an interesting topic because he was saying, you know, in some cases there are no bike lanes or the bike lanes that were there, they were removed. And, you know, what's a bike lane? It's usually that kind of a very narrow strip uh, to the right next to the curb, right? Which is where there's just like a little bit of asphalt and then like a stripe of concrete. And then there are, uh, you know, storm drains there. And that's a tricky spot to ride your bike if you're in a bike lane. I mean, now bike lanes have gotten a little better where they're significantly away from the storm drains, but you're kind of more out closer to traffic. But in some cases, there are no bike lanes. Maybe they never existed, or in some cases, they went away. Then there are now cases we're seeing in California where bike lanes and cars share the right lane. And that's an interesting one. So, And I know that's a recent rule. I think it was a law that was passed, I don't know, four or five years ago. So if you're on a, a four-lane road, like two lanes in each direction, then two lanes in each direction, the left lane is cars exclusively, but the right lane could be cars or bicycles. They share the lane. Now, if you're a very experienced cyclist, you know, especially if you're on a road bike, that can make sense. You can make that work. But if you're like an 11-year-old riding your bicycle to go to elementary school, that doesn't work. You don't want to be like – it's one thing to be in a bike lane. It's another thing to be in a lane with all the cars. I mean literally sharing the road with cars. Now, when I rode my bike to school, whenever I was on any form of a busy street, I would always ride on the sidewalk. And I know that's supposed to be for pedestrians, but you know – 99% of the time, there aren't pedestrians. And if there are, you can always go around them. So when I would ride up and down like a busy street like the El Camino Real, I would just ride on sidewalks. And besides, on a BMX bike, the sidewalks are a lot more interesting because there's always like little jumps and berms and little things you could kind of have fun with as you rode. Whereas if you were in a bike lane on the street, it's just flat and boring. Now, when I would get into the side streets, then I would obviously just get in the middle of the street because there were no cars. And then besides, when you're in the side streets where it's more, you know, real estate and family housing. Yeah. Then, the, then that's a lot of times where you get like the Yahoo that's got like five cars and he's blocking the sidewalk or something crazy. You got to get out into the street where it's clear, but that always worked for me. But 
cycling is like not a very big deal here in Poway. I mean, we'll see the road bikers, you know, I'll see them going up and down Pomerado Road. And you know, my daughter is a big road biker and she's a triathlete. I mean, amazing the things that she's done. But you don't see a lot of kids riding bikes and it makes you wonder, like, why? Like, is it just the whole video game generation and people are just more inside where before going out and being on a bike was freedom? It was our way of escaping, you know, from the, you know, the, the, the four walls of our house. But is that a big deal for children anymore? I don't, it doesn't seem like it is, especially with so much structured activity for children. For us, having a bike and being out was like, it was, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is what it was. Um, and we just had to be home by a certain time, either by, you know, a certain time on the clock or, a certain time, like when the sun goes down or sun, we used to have one where the streetlights, when they came on, it was when you had to be home. We had all sorts of systems that worked, but I don't think that's as big of a deal, especially for children here in Poway. Well, um, Amit was talking about maybe what we need to do is to borrow um, a strategy from our friends in Europe where they actually have an exclusive dedicated bike lane that is like a legit lane that can't be used by cars and is significantly away from the sidewalk, away from the storm drains. And, you know, that sounds good on its surface. If they built these bike lanes, would it encourage more bike riding? It might. It might not. But then it makes you wonder, like, could they even do this? I mean, could you could you put these anywhere? Like, right now, one of the things we complain about here in Poway is there's a lot of construction on Poway Road. Because they're building, gosh, a new community center, and then three different projects are going in for housing and commercial property. There's three separate things. There's the outposts, the um, the Poway Commons, and then this new one that's taking over where the thrift stores and the bowling alley is. And already right now, Poway Road traffic is hell. I mean, it's mostly because, A, you know, there's a lot of people driving. B, there's a Walmart, so that attracts a lot of out-of-towners. But then C, because of the construction, a lot of times one of the lanes is, is blocked because, you know, you've got a cement truck or something in the middle of the road. And so the traffic bottlenecks and it makes it even worse. So now imagine if instead you had a dedicated bike lane, I mean, you wouldn't be able to have two cars in each direction. You'd only be able to do one car in each direction. And imagine what traffic would be like there. So... Amit's idea of one, a dedicated exclusive bike lane, I mean, it sounds nice, but could it even be implemented? Um, Now, he goes on to say, you know, maybe we could pave some of the trails. I agree with that. I think that's a good idea. Um, But, you know, Amit thinks we need to invest more in cycling infrastructure. And I'm definitely open to that. I think it's, it's an idea that's worthy of exploration. I think that they could, you know, every... The system we have in Poway, I think it's every seven years, I think it is, every road gets repaved. Every road is not just slurry sealed, but they get a whole new thing of asphalt on it. That's why the roads in Poway are pretty darn good, because every seven years you get a new road, essentially. But what they could do is when they put in that new road, they could start painting more bike lanes, especially in... You know, again, on the super busy streets like Poway Road, that's going to be tough, but it's doable. I mean, they could try to figure out a way, but certainly on the on the smaller streets, 
they could definitely do it. And it would be a really interesting experiment to see how much cycling increases by doing that. And I think that'd be worthy of exploration. It would also maybe be of benefit to a lot of people here in, in Poway, especially my neighbors that live up here off of Stone Canyon Road. They're always trying to figure out ways to slow traffic down. You know, we have a, I think it's a 35 mile an hour speed limit on Stone Canyon, and they've been wanting to reduce it to 25, but they can't because it's determined to be a um, a minor artery. I guess it's the way the city classifies these roads and they can't lower the speed limit. But imagine instead if they had more bike lanes, that would sort of further force drivers to be more aware and have to drive slower. It would also narrow the lane more for the car, which also is a proven technique to slow drivers down. In fact, they did that on Stone Canyon Road. They narrowed the lane for the car, and that has a, like a subconscious effect on the driver, and they drive slower. So I think it's, it's an issue. I think Amit's bringing up a good topic. I think there are things that we can explore to do this. Now, and it shouldn't be that expensive. It just may just be a matter of, of drawing stripes on the road, and that might be all that's necessary. We'll see. Now, on, pa- on, on Espola, they're going to be building a better walk path for the high school students. They're going to be doing a better system there, at least for pedestrians. But, you know, now with mountain bikes and, you know, even like when I was riding a BMX bike, there's no reason they can't ride on that trail, too, and stay out of the road and then kind of just maneuver around pedestrians. To me, that's acceptable. I don't know if other people would find it acceptable, but I think it is. It's better than being out on the road dodging cars that are zipping by at 55 miles an hour. Um, but what was interesting is that after Amit's editorial ran, and he, he gets to do a guest editorial with the Poway Chieftain. He's done a few of them. I know he did one on solar. It was really good. Um, he's, so I'm guessing they, he probably does like maybe one every six to nine months. Maybe once a year he's done an editorial. Well, after the article was published, there were a couple of people that wrote letters to the editor commenting on it. And by the way, um, I love the letters to the editor's section in pomeradonews.com. In fact, it's probably the place I look to first of any part of the, of the online newspaper. Because it's kind of like social media, where people would be able to respond and make comments. And I would always read letters to the editor before social media became a really big thing. But I think as social media has become more prevalent, they the newspapers began shutting off the online comments after the article because, you know, sometimes some of the language there would get pretty nasty. But now I think less people are doing letters to the editor because they're doing more of their commentary on social media. So sometimes I'll go on pomeradonews.com and they'll go one or two weeks with no letters to the editor. And it always disappointed me. And I, I remember I wrote an art, uh, like a little message back to them on their Facebook messenger. And I asked them, how come you're not running more letters to the editor. And they said, we just don't get them. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess what it is. But still after Amit's article, he got a couple of people writing in and one had an interesting comment. This is kind of maybe a little bit from left field, but this writer, his name's Carmen Brown. I assume that's a woman's name, Carmen. Um, and she said the problem was that it was government ownership of transportation infrastructure. And, and she said that there, there are 3 million fatalities on the road which is an enormous number nationally. Three million people die on the roads every year. How come there's no sort of moment of clarity? How come people aren't waking up and saying, wow, 
there's, I mean, how, why are we putting up with this? <laughs> there's so much death on the roads. Um, how come that's not being as addressed as seriously as it should be? Um, she goes on to say that, you know, parts of the system just don't work right. Like you could be at a red light and you could be waiting there forever and there's no cars coming in either direction, but you're still sitting there waiting. So there's a lot of inefficiencies in the way the system is built. And her claim was that we're paying dearly for an inferior product. And then the fact that there's a de facto monopoly on transportation by the government. And that, that's actually a fair point because when there is a de facto monopoly on this sort of thing by the government, it basically crowds out entrepreneurs that might want to get in there and compete, but also compete with more innovative solutions. It kind of diminishes that. You see less of it because it's just so commonly accepted that the government runs it. But yet our transportation system is a cluster. It's not just, you know, with public transportation like rail or or with busing or whatever, but it's just everything. You know, the freeways, I mean, it's everything. And you go down your main street in your in your hometown and it's traffic and congestion, just like we have on Poway Road here in Poway. Even on Pomerado Road, we live, we live kind of off of Pomerado Road. That, that can get pretty backed up at times too. Um, but we just accept it, right? We just accept it. And we just accept that the government, the city should run it. But Why? Um, why not let different people come in with different ideas, like bike lanes, as an example? Um, they could be doing a lot of things very differently. They might even have a better incentive uh, to really program the streetlights so they're more synchronized and traffic flows better. In fact, in fact, that's what the farm in Poway is doing on Espola here as part of that plan. Kevin McNamara was here on the podcast and he was telling us how he, as a private developer, is working with the city to install technology on the streetlights on a Spola road so that they are synchronized. And they are synchronized based on the flow of traffic. So they're, they're not all going to just go red at random times, even if traffic's not there. If traffic is there and traffic is flowing, it's going to stay green. And the stoplight after it's going to stay green. And the one after that is going to stay green. And they're going to let the cars flow through. Private innovators have been able to bring this to the table where public, um, you know, public officials have been kind of slow to the dance, slow to the party. So, yeah, why does it have to be essentially a de facto monopoly? I thought that was a very interesting uh, comment. Another Letter to the editor came from another person. His name is Ron, Ron Emanuel, <laughs> not a Rom Emanuel, who I mentioned earlier, never let a crisis go to waste. But this is Ron, like Ronald, Ron Emanuel. He said he criticized the idea of build the road and cyclers will use it, like, you know, build the bike lane and then cyclers will use it. I think it's that's a fair criticism. It may be wishful thinking because they could go out and build all these wonderful bike lanes and it may turn out that no one wants to use them. Because they like getting a ride to school by mom or mom likes taking their 11-year-old to school or their 8-year-old to school every day. Or they're sitting on their butt playing their video game and they have no interest in biking in the first place. So that's a fair point. I think that's why if they are going to do bike, more bike lanes in Poway, then they need to experiment it with it and, and put it into certain parts of the city as a test and be able to see if people begin to embrace it. And if they do... If they build them and they actually use them, then yeah, sure. Then let, begin to expand it and then figure out a way to do it on the main roads, 
like Poway Road, Espola Road, Pomerado Road, Twin Peaks. That's where the heavy tra- car traffic is. They ain't got to figure out a way to put them there. Um, but actually on Twin Peaks, you know, that would be a very easy place to create a dedicated bike lane off of the street because they have all those eucalyptus trees there. And they got a nice sort of meandering, winding pedestrian path. But there's no reason that next to that they couldn't build a straight line paved path for cyclists exclusively. It would get them off the road, get them away from pedestrians, and there's plenty of space for it. That's something they could do, you know, relatively easy. I mean, it would cost money and time to do it, but it could be done. Um, And then... Ron Emanuel goes on to say that the pandemic has woke up powerful forces who think remote learning and working is just fine. And that's, that's a good point. Well, when people are, more people are working from home and we're seeing that with the pandemic, I've worked from home for over 10 years. Um, but now more people are working from home. And I now, once this pandemic eventually goes away and we kind of sort of, sort of get back to normal, there's still going to be more people that are going to work from home, which means there'll be less cars on the road and there'll be less people commuting, less people that would need to commute by bicycle or by car because they just stay home. And the same thing may be true in education, depending on what happens um, with more online learning. Never mind the fact that online learning for a lot of students in public schools was a cluster. It was in many cases horrible, horribly implemented, but some private schools actually did a good job of it. Others had mixed results. I would expect that that's technology that's going to improve and get better. And we're going to have better uh, online education. And over time, we're going to see more students working for uh, studying from home, especially college students and high school students. Um, Would that be reason that there's less people commuting and therefore less need for these bike paths? Fair question. Um, but I don't know my my thoughts on this. I like I told you, I'm a, bi- I, biking was a big big deal in my in my youth. I wish it were more of a big deal for me as an adult. I try to ride my. I have an indoor bicycle that I ride almost at once a day. Um, you know, while it just as an opportunity to exercise, and I've got my own bikes in the garage, including some old BMX bikes. I need to go out riding more. But I'm be- very open, sympathetic, have a deep love of cycling. So when Amit comes out with this article and says, we need to promote more bicycling, I'm like, yeah, right on. I agree. Um, He goes on further, you know, this whole notion of isolated bike lanes. I think that's a good idea, but I do worry that if they are built, many people might not use them. It's like the San Diego trolley. You know, the, the San Diego trolley is interesting. I mean, if you look at that, I remember the line along Mission Valley into Petco. It could be jam packed when the Padres are playing, but most of the time, there's very few people on the trolley. You know, I challenge you, if you're ever in a part of town where you're at a stoplight and, you know, the trolley, you know, railroad, red and white, what do they call that? Kind of like a barrier drops down and you look in the trolley. Just try to get a sense of how full the trolley cars are. My experience is, is I rarely ever see them more than 20% full. With the exception of when there's like a Padre game or when there was an Aztec game where we would park off campus and take the trolley up to San Diego State. We, we did that a few times. And then definitely when the, with the trolley at Qualcomm, you know, that's going to be used for sure, especially as they build that new San Diego State campus. But if you're ever like in, I don't know, Santee or 
or Lemon Grove or wherever that you happen to be driving around town and the trolley goes by, look and see how many people actually use it. That's my worry if we actually build like dedicated bike lanes like Europe. If we built them, they may not come. But then it's a catch-22. Like if you don't build them, then they never will come. You know, if you don't build them, they don't encourage people to change their behavior. So I understand the other side of it. Um, But no doubt we have to be more open and cooperative as drivers when we're around cyclists. Um, Some drivers are rude to cyclists. Some cyclists are rude back to drivers. I remember one time I was riding my bike. I mean, excuse me, I was driving my truck. I was on Poway Road and I was, I thought being very careful. Um, And there was a bike cyclists on Poway Road in, there was no technically, I don't think there was a bike lane, but he was like there on the right-hand side and I was safely passing him. And I was, I didn't think I was close to him at all, but he reached over while I was passing him and I might've been going I don't know, like 15 or 20 miles an hour. I wasn't going that fast. And he reached over and banged on the side of my truck. I was like, well, what the hell was that? And I look and it was the, it was the cyclist. And when I saw him through the rearview mirror, he was giving me a dirty look. Maybe he thought I drifted into his space too much. I didn't think I did, but I must have. So there's still a lot of this, you know, awareness, cyclists of cars, cars of cyclists. We've got to do better at that, no doubt. Um, I love the idea of using the trails as a way to interconnect a lot of these neighborhoods um, and where necessary, you know, just put a little asphalt down. I don't think that's a bad thing for hikers or for horses if they have to encounter a little bit of asphalt, if that makes it easier for cyclists to get around. But, you know, really, most cyclists that are going to be riding through neighborhoods are probably not going to be riding $3,000, $5,000 road bikes. They're going to probably be riding like a BMX bike or an inexpensive child's bike or maybe a nice mountain bike where really the trail itself should be fine anyways. Because a lot of those trails are pretty smooth. They're pretty well maintained. You may not even need to pave a lot of them because they might be acceptable the way they are. Um, I think it also, the thing, another thing that we could do here locally is make cycling cool again. Um, you know, back when I raced BMX, um, for a certain segment of kids our age, riding bikes was cool. Um, and there was a whole lifestyle to it. You know, it's kind of intersected with the skateboarder lifestyle and the surfer lifestyle. The BMX was kind of all part of that. Um, but I remember that there was, you know, the, we had a leading magazine called Bicycle Motocross Action, which was like our Bible. We Every month we read that like it was the most important thing to be delivered to us, obviously in the pre-internet days. This is like 1979, 1980. But then in the early 80s, um, freestyle BMX became a thing. Um, and Bicycle Motocross Action magazine had their own freestyle team. And what they would do is rather than racing they would ride their bike and they would go up these half pipe ramps that skateboarders were using and they would do tricks on their bike or they do all these kind of crazy tricks on their on their bicycle on flat asphalt. And there were some people that would love that and then didn't do racing at all. They were more into this, what they call freestyle. Well, that eventually turned into the X Games and the X Games and these gigantic ramps and you see bikes on those all the time. Well, back in the 80s, Bicycle Motocross Action Magazine, they're they had a freestyle team and they would actually go to schools and they would put on like a, um, a school assembly and they would set up in the asphalt area of the playground 
or sometimes in the gymnasium. And they would do these awesome displays. It was like a little miniature X Games event. And it, and it made it so bicycling was cool. And it encouraged the growth of the sport. And I thought that was a great idea. Poway Unified could do that very easily. There are a lot of freestylers that are out there that would love to perform. In fact, there's a lot of them that I'm sure are already doing it for schools. That's something that could happen. Um, but I think in the end, the real answer to all this is going to be technology because technology is what always typically solves the problem. As, you know, I told you we have electric vehicles and, and these electric cars we have have sensors on them that are unbelievably smart. I can I totally get how Tesla is really close to having fully self-driven cars. You know, we were talking earlier about a company here in San Diego that's creating automated, you know, driverless semi-trucks. Well, as this technology continues to get better, we're going to see more driverless cars. And that might sound kind of scary, but imagine if we have these autonomous vehicles that are driverless that are essentially like taxi cabs. Because they have sensor technology, they can not only move, they can, they can drive close together, like in a swarm, like the way bees fly. These cars can move in, a, as a swarm, very tightly packed together, and do so efficiently. Like you can't do that with humans driving because we make too many mistakes. We drive too close, we're going to rear end someone. But if the cars have these sensor technologies and they can communicate amongst themselves, then you're going to have a better flow of traffic and it's going to be a lot safer, not only for the people that are in those new cars, but also for cyclists because the sensor technology on these vehicles will be able to detect cyclists and be able to make noises like a horn or a warning signal that they're coming or be able to move out of the way. There's going to be a lot of technology that's going to allow cycling to be a lot more safe on the roads. And frankly, I think when you have these autonomous driverless electric vehicles combined with more people working from home, there's going to be less people on the road. And those that are on the road are going to be traveling more efficiently and it's going to be cleaner but it's also going to be safer. Um, it's going to be a huge win, and we're not that far away from it. In my opinion, I think that is the answer ultimately. And when we get to that, it's going to open up a whole new world for cycling. We don't, we, but we shouldn't have to wait. I mean, there are things we can do now, and we've talked about some of those ideas. But in general, I'm just really appreciative of that article that Amit posted in on Pomerado News. It was a guest editorial. He did a good job. And I think cycling is something that should be encouraged more. I think especially for young people, it's, um, you know, cycling is a beautiful thing. And it's, it's, it's an opportunity that we can have great benefits in our community because we'll have less people on the road and we'll have um, less congestion and traffic around our schools every morning. You know, that's not only difficult for parents that are trying to drop off their kids and race to work and whatever, but even for people that don't have children, you know, driving through a school zone around those hours, I mean, you want to avoid those, those places because it's just so awful. The traffic and not only that, but the potential for something terrible to happen as little kids are jumping out of their mom's car and when the mom's double parked, I mean, anything stupid could happen. Um, we can minimize a lot of that if we just encourage more biking. So why not? Yeah, good for you, Amit. I appreciate that article. Okay, so 
Um, Wow, we're kind of near the end here. I've got a couple of closing quotes, but if you've gotten this far in the podcast, thank you for listening. Thanks for watching. You know, we we live stream this on Facebook and on YouTube every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 o'clock. We encourage your thoughts and comments. We had a number of people that chimed in on the live stream. Thank you for that. And of course, we produce these podcasts and they're on, what do they say now? Wherever you get your podcasts. So, you know, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, we're on all those platforms. So we encourage you to, you know, visit us there. We encourage you just to like these episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel, subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use, like Apple Podcasts or or Spotify, um, and share these episodes with a friend. That'd be really helpful. You know, you can just click on the share button in Facebook, the share button on YouTube, or just tell a friend, you know, hey, check out this guy, the John Riley Project. It's a podcast. It's a guy back in Poway, and he talks about local issues in the Poway area. He also talks about San Diego issues, California, and sometimes national issues. And frankly, we're talking about the state of Georgia and the city of Poway in one podcast. Who else does that? So we're doing that. So, you know, share it with a friend and let them know. And again, we encourage you to you can listen to the recorded version, or you can actually catch us live on the live stream. Okay, I got a couple of closing quotes, and two of them are related to voting. And the first one is by a guy, his name's Larry Sabato, and he's a political science professor at the University of Virginia. And he says, every election is determined by the people who show up. Exactly. That, exactly. The people that show up are the ones that make the decisions. And that's what makes these voting rights limitations, these restrictions on voting just so frustrating and infuriating because, yeah, every election is determined by the people who show up. They're trying to limit the people who show up by design. They want to limit people from showing up so that their side can have a better chance to win, which is just unbelievable. And then here's another quote. This is from um, from President Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, from the 1960s. And he says, the right to vote is the basic right without which all others are meaningless. It gives people, people as individuals, control over their own destinies. Well, now I would contend that the most basic right without which all other rights are meaningless are your inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You have to own yourself and you have to have the liberty to live your life and to pursue uh, your life and live according to your own values. That, that notion of individualism is really a fundamental right, more so than, than voting. But still, voting is important and voting is an important right and what you vote can actually have an impact on your quality of life. But the the angle from this is, of course, it's written by a politician who depends on votes for them to um, be able to retain their power position. So, of course, they're going to say that it gives people, people as individuals, control over their own destinies. Frankly, voting limits your ability to control your own destiny when other people vote to restrict your freedom. If you want to have the most control over your own destiny, then you need to embrace your inalienable rights of life, of liberty, and your pursuit of happiness. That is what gives you the greatest control over your own destiny. Voting, ultimately, now granted there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, voting is usually about how can you control other people? 
How can laws or politicians be elected that are going to implement laws that are going to restrict and limit the liberties and freedoms of other people? That's usually what happens with voting. That's why I said in the podcast earlier, it's important that we don't let this notion of voting get us down. We got to call them out for their BS for violating voting rights, but we got to live our life and be so successful and so happy in our own pursuit of happiness that the voting and the government become almost non-issues. But it's hard, but ultimately that's what we have to think. We have to think that way. At the same time, participating in the vote as much as you can, calling out cases where votes are suppressed but not let voting really being the primary. Voting is secondary. You're living your life as the primary. Um, And then here's a a quote on cycling. And this is from John David. And he is one of the executives in USA BMX. Um, USA BMX is kind of the sanctioning organization for all of BMX racing in the United States that, you know, there used to be the NBA which is what I started with, not the National Basketball Association, but it was the National Bicycle Association. Then there was the ABA, the American Bicycle Association. Then there was the NBL, the National Biking League, I think. And these are all competing sanctioning bodies for BMX racing back in the 70s and 80s. Well, now they've all consolidated into one, which I think is a good thing. And it's um, USA BMX. And this guy, John David from USA BMX says, The hallmark of BMX are two fundamentals. One, it's one of the few sports in the United States where you can go out as a family and participate together, whether it's on a local level or a national level. That's very true because children of all ages can race, boys and girls can race, but also there are racing um, categories for adults. I mean, I remember I've raced BMX in my 50s and in my late 40s. Um, there's, B, there's BMX racing for adults, for adult men and adult women um, on various scales of bikes. It's definitely a sport that an entire family can do together, you know, as opposed to going, you know, to a little league game and you're watching the young boy play and everyone else sort of sits in the stands and watches. Well, this is one where you can not only watch your family members, but every family member can participate. And then he goes on to say, secondly, no one sits on the bench. When a brand new racer joins the sport, they race in the novice category. Everyone actively participates in BMX. And that's true, too. This is another reason why biking was a big deal in my life when I was a kid is that, you know, I, I participated in baseball and basketball and I wasn't the best athlete. And sometimes I was on the B team. Sometimes I was on the bench. And that got to be a bit discouraging. But when I raced BMX, I always raced. It didn't matter. I never sat on the bench. I was never, you know, essentially demoted. Um, there was races for novice, which is actually they created one called beginner. Then they had novice level, intermediate level, expert level, and pro level. And so I remember I started off doing novice, and then I this is before they had beginner and intermediate. I went did novice, and then I graduated to expert, and I raced in the expert class all the way up until I went away to college. Um, if I had stuck with it, I probably would have gone pro. Um, but yeah, uh, BMX racing is a cool sport because the whole family can do it together and no one sits on the bench. Everyone participates. And it's cool. It's a good sport. It really is. Um, and we could encourage more biking in our communities 
by really promoting sports like BMX. That that can be done by promoting freestyle at you know school assemblies. Could also be done by you know trying to get a BMX track here in Poway. I know they've talked about that a lot. There are only how many BMX tracks exist in San Diego County? There's one in Kearney Mesa. There's one in Lakeside. And then there's one at the Olympic training facility in Chula Vista. Well, they could, they've, they've talked about building a BMX track in Escondido at the um, Kit Carson Park. They've talked about building them here in Poway. I remember a long, long time ago, apparently there was a track here in Poway. But they were, I've been talking about building one, I think, across the street from Garden Road School. But, you know, people get upset. We don't want more people coming in here. And, you know, you usually get shot down. But imagine if we wanted to really take a leadership position in this as a city, we could make cycling a bigger part of our culture just by building a track here and getting young children really interested in biking. That could do wonders to the way people commute around the city uh, and how children end up going to school. You'd be surprised. That could be a good culture-changing opportunity. Okay, so... Well, an hour and a half we've been going here. So it's Friday. Um, I hope you are looking forward to your weekend. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thanks for watching. This is the John Riley Project. It's episode number 216. It's springtime. Padres opening day is on April 1st. Hope you're getting ready for that. Trying to get David Leland in here and to do another podcast, doing a season preview on the Padres. So hopefully we can squeeze that in next week. Uh, But until then, we'll be back at you Monday at 2. Thanks again, friends. Be safe out there, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye.